Today, we're still going to go back into that same, stay in that same mode. We're still going to be dealing with oneness. We're still going to be dealing with the, with the central topics we've been talking about and that big one we've talking about, and that's Christ and the church and how that marriage mirrors that, that idea of Christ and the church. Except this week, we're going to delve into it as it relates to money, as it relates to, uh, to the stuff, uh, the stuff that we have. So to start with, I have a question. Question's always good. What is a steward? What would someone tell me the def- definition of a steward? We're open here. I'm walking here because I can hear you. I'm old, so I'm kind of deep. Do what? Do what? <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. We're still talking about steward. So, somebody, steward, the idea. What do you, what do you think of? Somebody who takes care of something that doesn't actually belong to them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good definition. In today's society, can we think of people who do that? Yeah. Well, if, if Danny were here, which he's not yet, he may come in later, you know. Do I? Congress people with our taxes? I don't think we ought to classify as a good steward. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, what about an attorney? For instance, taking care of somebody's estate. You know, we might consider that to be a steward or, or something like that. Do what? We're supposed to be. That's what we're going to get at. Exactly. We're supposed to be. And that's what we're going to get at. So a steward, as we've said, is a person who looks after or who manages other people's stuff. You know, money, perhaps land or whatever. Um, They usually don't have a vested interest in whatever they're managing. A steward's not going to be someone who's going to actually uh, uh, have a vested interest in it. So, uh, at the time of our Bible, you know, that scripture was written, stewards were a big thing. They were used a lot. And they were usually used for when, when a landowner or somebody, they had a lot of stuff, be it money, usually property, herds, whatever that thing, they would, they would have a steward, and that steward could either be, they could be hired, they could be a slave. You know, there, there were... Uh, um, they could be an indentured servant back then. There, there were different, different types of stewards back then, but typically, again, they didn't have a real vested interest. The owner had the stuff. And they're usually stewards were for a particular purpose, and that was so the owner didn't have to take care of his particular stuff. He could, he could let someone else do it. So a good, a good steward, though, even though they didn't get to particularly have their owner stuff, a good steward, if they were a good steward, might get to use or have access to a lot of what, of what the owner had. And how they handled their masters, their owner's property, that kind of determined how they lived. Um, stewards, uh, they were usually positioned, they were trained, they were instructed, they were brought up in how to manage that person's, uh, their goods or their stuff. Um, sometimes they were given some leeway, sometimes not. But it's a serious and privileged position. And uh, Jesus, if we remember in in Scripture, he used several parables concerning stewards. Um, 
And also another prime example we might think about, you know, is Joseph. You know, the story of Joseph. You know, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was taken to Egypt. And he found himself in, in Potiphar's household as a slave. But as scripture tells us, the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph was faithful to his master's goods. If we look at Genesis, and we look in chapter 39, verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he had to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight, in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So through Joseph's diligence and his good care for Potiphar's stuff, Potiphar gave him charge over his entire estate, over everything. Like I said before, Joseph was a slave, so he couldn't receive a whole lot of financial gain from that. But Joseph worked hard, and he did what his master wanted him to do. He fulfilled his master's desires, and, and no doubt he took excellent care. He took, you know, from what we know in Scripture, he must have taken excellent care of his master's goods and stuff. So that's where God calls us to be stewards in the same way. Joseph is a primary example of that. God refers to his redeemed people, especially leaders of his household, as stewards. In Titus 1.7, we read, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. We can see where through these scriptures that you know, those particular uh, attributes would not be good for a steward, someone who's, greed, someone who's greedy, you know, or violent or a drunkard. So Jesus used an example in Luke to encourage faithfulness in all his followers. In Luke 12, 42, we read that the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give their portion of food to the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So how does, it, how does being a steward relate to the marriage relationship? Well, Paul himself saw himself as a steward. And uh, the other apostles of, of stewards, as stewards of God's mercy and God's grace. And I can think of no greater charge made in all of, all of that than to be made stewards of God's grace and mercy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, we read, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Just like Joseph was found faithful. We're to be found faithful in earthly things that rust and fade away, we should be faithful also in the ministry of the gospel, as well as faithful in the management of our earthly wealth. He, God, he gives the treasures in heaven, and he gives the treasures on earth. He owns it all. He even owns the, cat, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now he entrusts that to us, like temporal gifts to be enjoyed, they're also to be invested for eternal gains. As stewards, we've been or perhaps will be entrusted with property and possessions. Some of us are older and, and we've accumulated more. Some are newer, younger. And in time, you will perhaps even 
acquire possessions. But we've been called by God as his children to look after what, he's been, what we've been given. He's called us and enabled us by his word to guard his property well. He wants us to enjoy them, but he also wants us to invest them for the sake of his name. And how we steward what God has granted us demonstrate Christ in the church and the world. As we read above, this is how one should regard us. Those of the world around, that are around God's people, they take notice. They notice how we spend their money. They notice how we do things with the things that we have. So that represents, that, that shows to the world Christ in the church. If we are loose with what we have, if we uh, spend what we have unwisely, it's noticed. If we spend what we have, we use what we have, we, uh, as well as talents, as well as goods, that's noticed by the outside world. We demonstrate Christ to the world by how we spend and use what, what God's given us. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word but in, or talk, but in deed and in truth. So there's the deed part of it. In other words, how we, how we spend our money, how we do with what God has given us to steward shows to the outside world Christ in us. So let's look at a couple, of, a couple of factors involved here. First, let's look at the heart of a faithful steward. In Matthew 6, 21, it says, For where your heart is, there your, there your treasure will be also. Christ said basically here, whatever rules your heart or will rule your lives. If the Spirit of Christ rule your hearts, he's going to rule our bank accounts. Now, I'll be honest with you here. I'm, I'm not the best about seeing people when people have need. I'm not the best at that. Uh, fortunately, I have this oneness thing going on. I have a wonderful wife named Doris, and she is, has the, the ability to see things that I don't when it comes to the needs of other people's. And then she'll go, hey, Dave, what about... And, and then I can say, oh, <laughs> duh, yeah, there's the need. So, so it's a wonderful gift there. So our money and our possessions, they only exist to serve the glory of God and his kingdom. So in that, we look at, well, what's a wise heart? What's a wise heart in, in the stewardship of a marriage? Well, having a wise heart means being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and dealing faithfully with what God has so graciously, graciously given us. That also means having a shared mission in life. You know, or again, you know, seems like we keep coming back to this oneness thing, Right? We keep coming back to this oneness. We keep coming back to this picture of Christ in the church. And it keeps coming back to us uh, even with, within our finances. So we're back to that oneness thing. But this time we must look at oneness with our spouse when it comes to finances. And also oneness with, when it comes to our finances and the critical matters of the church also. My wife and I need to be one when we're tonight, for instance, is a good example uh, we're going to be in a business meeting. We're going to be talking about critical matters of the church. And it's, it's important that we be one, just as it's important as, you know, there's only one spirit, you know, and we all need to be attuned to that one spirit. That's that unity thing. It works in the marriage. It works also in the body of Christ and, and his believers. So... Philippians 2, 2 says, complete my joy by being, the, by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. So when we're able to be seen as wise, wise stewards, we're being seen as one. You know, we talked last week about that. It's harder to divide one by a whole number than it is to divide two by a whole number. We can divide two a lot easier than we can divide one. So oneness is, is, is greatly important. Our, our, our spouse can't be going on a spending spree and buying a bunch of fishing gear or buying a bunch of shoes without the other spouse knowing. That's not being one. That's, that's not being one with one another. Um, you know, we talked, um, and, and kind of like what we talked about last week, we talked about infidelity a little bit. We you know, just, uh, just throwing out some numbers again, I don't know the exact numbers, I didn't write them down. But the two biggest reasons for divorce in the United States, which also means in the church, are infidelity and financial problems. Those are the biggies. So, so you wonder, well, why are we hitting these things so hard when, it, when we're talking about the, the marriage relationship? That's why we're hitting them so hard, is because they're important. They're important to us. So we looked at kind of, kind of giving a little glancing blow to what, a wise, to what a wise stewardship is in a marriage. Let's take a look at maybe about foolish marriage, foolish stewardship in a marriage. So we know that disagreements are going to happen, especially when it comes to money. Budget, you know, that kind of thing. It's just kind of part of married life. But as we saw, what, three weeks? It's been three weeks ago now. We talked about... Uh, um, uh, getting along, right? We talked about uh, James chapter 4. We talked about what causes in, in verse 1. If you remember James chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not lies that your possessions, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. We talked about how that, yeah, in the, in the marriage, we're going to have these things, these conflicts. And in, in particular, when, when it comes to and we're dealing with um, money, those conflicts, those conflicts seem to abound. So usually, just like what James has been saying here, our focus, we're focused on ourselves. We covet right? He says that. So we fight, we quarrel. Our side is on the I and the me and not on the him or the us. So from James, we can see that uh, they come from a sinful desire of the heart. We covet. And you know, finding better, when it comes to finances, finding better techniques and a better budget, that's not going to fix the problem. Can't fix the problem because it's a heart problem. And if we don't start with that, dealing with the heart, if we see and if we ask wrongly, just like, he said, like James said, we're seeking wrongly. If we don't ask from the heart and know that our only remedy is Jesus Christ, that he remains thankful, he remains faithful. Sometimes good, good techniques for managing money can be used for things that we covet and desire. They also may help us make a lot of money. They may keep us out of debt. They may not, however, make us love God and the people through the use of our money. So financial techniques and money, management plans, budgets, they're all still good when used with care, not discounting them. You know, go ahead, develop a budget. Get financial advice. 
It's wisdom. Just remember there are tools to an end. They're simply aids to good stewardship. They're not the key. The key is the spirit of Christ ruling in our hearts and on our minds. Foolish stewardship usually, as we've said earlier, is, is a result of selfishness, selfishness, which keeps showing its ugly head with regard to oneness. It's hard to be one when you're selfish, when one or the other is selfish. Sin is easier. It's always been, always will be. Only hearts on Christ can win out. So does our love of Christ rule our lives or the stuff that we think will make us happy? We have dis- will we have disagreements about finances? Yeah, we will. Will we have disagreements on how we save money and manage it? Yeah, we will. In a marriage, there's, there's probably going to be two different ideas on how to manage money. But in Christ, these are not major problems. We can handle them and maybe enjoy and appreciate and celebrate the differences. In Christ, if Christ rules our hearts, we can work it all out. And keep in mind, I know in our, in our relationship, one of us is better with finances than the other. It'd be great if both of us were, were good with finances, but usually, like in our relationship, one's better than the other. And keep in mind, you know, you know if you're from my generation, you were brought up with well, a guy who does everything. I mean, you know, that includes managers of finances. Well, that might not have been the best thing now, and it might, be, it might not be the best thing, uh, best thing then, but it might not be the best thing now. Keep in mind that the wife might just have a head for numbers, and she may know how to do that. Uh, our son, our oldest son, his wife takes care of their finances and does a phenomenal job. So be open-minded. Be open-minded. As far as a good example of... Uh, of the heart and how money's handled. Let's look at the Philippian church. The, the planning of the Philippian church was recorded in Acts 16. You know, Paul and Silas, they were beaten and thrown into prison shortly after its conception. Now, after leaving the city, Paul and his team, they traveled, as scripture says, through Amphilius and Apollonia, Acts chapter 17, verse one, before coming to Thessalonica. The books of Acts says they reasoned in the synagogue for three Sabbaths before some jealous men incited a mob and sent them out of the city of Thessalonica, Acts 17.5. So Paul and Silas, they were whisked away by night to Berea. If we think about the timing of the scriptures, they were in Thessalonica less than three weeks. They'd been run out of Philippi. They were run out of Philippi and they made it over to Thessalonica and they only got to be there three weeks. Less than a month. So if we read in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, salvation is a wonderful thing. You know, and, and probably the most joyous um, times, or if you've ever been around someone newly saved, I mean, it's, it's great. Uh, Doris and I got to be around Taylor Castle after, after she came to know the Lord. It's just, it was great. It's just fantastic to be around. Well, now you've got this whole church. Just think about it, of newly saved people. You, can you imagine? I can't imagine the electricity that was going around there. Sometimes we, as Christians, we take that for granted. We take that, that um, excitement and, and the way it was when, when God first brought us into his family, you know, and, and the joy to know and love our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, hey. Well, here we have this whole group, this Philippian church. Well, you know, they'd just been saved, and they'd only been with them a little while, and they got run off. But the glory of Christ and his gospel, it had a hold of their souls. So much so, they started giving money to support the gospel and churches in the surrounding communities. So the glory of Christ and his gospel, they were everything to these, this, these uh, Philippian believers because the love of Christ and the glory of Christ was there. It had also taken over their finances, the love of God. Giving to the gospel ministry what God had already given to them, that to the Philippians, that wasn't burdensome as, Cole, as Paul saw it. That wasn't such a big deal. He was humbled by their desire to provide for him. It was a privilege, a sweet opportunity. I mean, he really, he, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. They shared with him in his work. They generously gave him their earthly things and they translated that their profit to profit and heavenly things. Their, their sacrifice was well-pleasing to God. Paul tells them their God would supply all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. Yet something I want to kind of point out here too is that Paul had a heart for receiving as well as giving. Sometimes our financial position in life is tenuous. We find ourselves in need and we have to allow God to provide for us. As Paul has also demonstrated, a heart that receives is humble and contrite with thanks to the earthly giver and reverence to the heavenly giver. It may be through sickness or accident or just the state of the world in finding employment and other things like that, but God will supply our needs and his riches in glory. So the next section we're going to talk about is enjoying, enjoying God and his provision. In 1 Timothy 4, or, yeah, 4.4, 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So God has made us stewards of his possessions. He's also, like we said in the very first part, he's gave, given us, he's granted us the use of his possessions. Paul calls these gifts. A gift is something that we didn't earn. There's nothing we did for it. We didn't deserve it. God intends us to enjoy these created things that he's provided. 
And we're not, to be, not meant to be ashamed of those possessions or comforts because everything God created is good. Everything God created shows his goodness. Every created thing God has given us as a possession has been given for the sake of his glory and his honor. And that's the way we need to look at it, that everything that we have is given for his, his glory and his honor. Um, Doris and I, we built a house on the river by, with our own little hands in 1980. And we had it just about finished. And the Lord came by and sent a tornado. And he wiped that house right off the slab, completely gone. And everybody kept coming up to us and saying, aren't you devastated? And by the grace of God, God had given us grace in that. We're, we're in our hearts, we knew that, hey, it wasn't ours to begin with. It was his. It was his to begin with. So if he wants to blow it to bits, that's his business, not ours. That's, you know, and, and that's pure grace because there's nothing in Doris and I that deserve that. That was just pure grace on his part. So we have to, we have to be thankful for those possessions we have and know that they're his. And that if he gives them, he also has the right to take them. <laughs> He's a sovereign God. He's gracious. Ecclesiastes 13.3, it says, Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. For this is God's gift to man. Enjoying God's provision rightly also means being content with whatever that, whatever that is. And whether that provision is light or it's great. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be, to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul understood that God's provision was just that, his provision. So whether Paul had a little or he had a lot, he meant to be content with that. So we can receive and enjoy any provision that he provides. Another little story. We owned a little donut shop years ago. Matter of fact, it was kind of when we were building the house. And I don't know if you think back then, donuts sold for 25 cents. Think how many donuts it makes to make a dollar. How many donuts it takes to make $10? Do the math. It takes a lot of donuts. And we're just getting this business started. And uh, so money was scarce. Matter of fact, we ate a lot of donuts because of that. I still love donuts. Yeah, I put on 30 pounds, if you can believe that. It was all right here. It's just because I love, it's called quality control. I love, I love tasting donuts. Anyway, it snowed. We lived at this house, which was out in the country on a great big hill, and it snowed. We didn't have money for anything. We, we, we didn't have money for nothing. It was, it was pretty bad. But we were able to take, you know, the, the yellow trays? We had yellow trays you stack your donuts on. When you're in the donut shop, you go and look in there and you got, kind of got these yellow trays. Well, I took a bunch of them home. We had our two boys were young back then. They were probably six and eight, something like that. And we took those yellow uh, things and we just, it's snow, we just slid down the mountain. We spent... We spent half a day sliding down that mountain on, on little donut holders. And to this day, 
those boys will tell you that was some of the most fun they ever had. God provided a little. It's up to us and his grace and mercy how we use that little and how we, uh, how we realize that it is his. It is a gift. It is something that he's given us. No matter how, not, no matter if it's just that yellow piece of plastic sliding down a hill. That was enjoyment to us and it meant something greatly to our children. And obviously to me, because I can still remember it like it was yesterday, we had a ball. So enjoy his provision, whether it's little or whether it's great. So now, what about the practices of faithful students? So we've kind of got the first part of it out of the way. Let's work towards the end here. So now we've looked at God's views of money. Let's, let's look at the, the ways it may be kind of practical. Now there's, like we said earlier, there's hundreds of tools, financial systems that can all be great things for the budget, handling finances and everything like that. Uh, and it's going to be up to each individual and each couple each uh, to decide just, you know, what, the, what suits their needs. What's going to take care of that? What's going to suit our needs? During, during this session, we're simply going to try to highlight a few important principles that, that help us to make, uh, be better stewards of the material possessions in a wise and biblical manner. And uh, like I say, the uh, kind of the nuances of it all, you know, you're all going to have to figure that out. The first is diligent work. God's got to work. You know, if we look in the very first chapter of the Bible, in the very, very beginning of the Bible, it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Hmm. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done from creation. Now, now God just had to do this, and the whole universe came into existence. So obviously it works probably just a little bit in a little different context. But what the idea I'm trying to get to here is that God is a God of work. He's a God of work. I can safely say, I think I can safely say that, uh, you know, before the fall of man, Adam had a good. You know, he had a good, didn't he? Think about it. Think about what he had. He had all he could eat, you know. Um, he had everything he needed. He even had... He had a, God provided him a woman, good or bad, however that works out. But anyway, but God provided everything man needed, even, even continual fellowship with himself. That's great. Then the fall. And then after the fall, things changed. Now, fruit wasn't provided on a tree that we could just walk up to and grab. You know, it wasn't just as simple as it used to be. He said in 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. Two things to note. We first have an example how work started the foundation of the world, and we also know that we have to work for our livelihood and for our sustenance. We can also glean from Genesis that work is honorable when it's performed with a pure heart. In Genesis 4.5, but for Cain and his offering, had, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is this your face fallen? If you do well, you will, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
Abel provided through his work a fitting sacrifice to the Lord. Cain did not. God told Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? To me, this is saying, yes, the blood of the sacrifice is needed, as I made for you when I clothed you. But it's not only the sacrifice that was made, but the manner in which the work and the sacrifice were made, that being selfishness and sin. Our heart determines our sacrifice, not necessarily just the sacrifice. Cain could have brought the proper sacrifice out of selfishness and his own desires. I have to wonder in my mind, would that have appeased God? Would that have been accepted, even in selfishness and sin? So honoring God and Christ as stewards of his creation, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all, all the earth and everything. It's not foreign. A stewardship's not foreign to us because we were made stewards from the very beginning. So we honor Christ as stewards of his creation through diligent and honest work. Paul tried to be a model to the Thessalonians in how he worked each day and provided for his own physical needs. He refused his right to exercise his right as an apostle and take money. So he kind of set an example. And he said in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. However, back then, some of the able-bodied men, probably believing that Jesus was about to come at any moment, uh, they quit working. So they didn't have any physical means to support their households. And they were taking and eating the bread of others' households. That's in Thessalonians 3.11, if you want to look that up. And it kind of reminded me of like when the kids, some of us parents, when the kids came back home, you know, after they were gone, out of college and stuff, you know, they come back, no, well, you probably, maybe you don't remember that, but yeah, that's the, it's the eating part. Anyway. Paul even said in, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worth an unbeliever. From God's point of view, laziness and refusal to work hard are rejections of godliness, but moreover, even in, in rejections of humanity. And if we look at Proverbs 18.9, down here. It says, whoever is slack in work is a brother to him who destroys. The reasons for unemployment, I understand that. There's physical injury that can break out our work routine. Unexpected things happen in the course of our lives. Trust me, I've been there. There may be periods of time when a wife or extended family or government or church or someone else is asked to provide financially for a household. Certainly there are exceptions, but these are rare. Men are called and enabled to work hard and provide for their home. That's what we do. 
Now, we can't justify working an insane number of hours for the sake of achieving a high standard of living. Again, I can attest to this. I'm, I'm a workaholic. I'll admit it. You know, it took me years to admit that I'm a workaholic. And like Doris can tell you, you know, there's, there's just, I get started work and I just, I can't quit. You know, but there's no justification for that because there's, a, a, there's a, actually a scripture. It says, by wisdom in Proverbs 24, 3, a house is built and by understanding it is established. So we need to use wisdom. And it's hard to break that workaholic syndrome. You know, providing for the physical needs of a home, it's important. But it's not the most essential provision a husband or father is to make. There may be times when two jobs are necessary just to make ends meet. I mean, there are exceptions. There may be times when in order to uh, get a position uh, that may help the family survive better, you may have to take some classes, you know, you, uh, and work at the same time, you know. There, you know, you, we're going to have to take a look at those things, each and every one of us by themselves. Um, but husbands and fathers, first and foremost, we were appointed as spiritual leaders of the home. First and foremost, we were appointed as shepherds of the home. That's, that was how, how it started. And we've already you know, pretty much discussed that. God has already assigned the role. And as couples, we kind of have to find out where that line is. We, as, as, as a married uh, couple, we kind of have to find out where that line is between what's too much, what's, what's enough. Now, a wife and a mother's primary responsibility, according to Scripture, can be found inside the home. Titus 2, 3 through 5 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, and be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, this does not mean a wife cannot work outside the home, home or even earn money. You know, if all of us that are familiar with Scripture, we know of Proverbs 31 and how, how the good wife uh, uh, sowed and, and sold and did things to raise money for the household. Yet the primary goal, the primary role for her is to be her husband and children. So women, some women, they feel free and they're able to work outside the home while still fulfilling all God has called them to do inside the home. And they have the consent of their husbands. But this is probably rare and a special calling. Um, it, Doris was able to stay with our kids despite not having any money, despite the the donut shop situation, making 25 cents a donut, she was able to be with our kids most of their young life. And, you know, those first early years, six to seven, it's important. It's, in, we re, it, it's that time when we really nurture our children the most. So it's important for a mother, if, if possible, if possible, to be at home with her children. And, and I do understand and realize it's a touchy subject, you know, and that certain women, they feel called, they, they can school their children at home and manage the home from there as well. But it's hard. Most families, uh, they have a hard time if both parents are working, fitting in um, those more important things of the church and the family. It's hard. It's difficult. So work is an important part of fulfilling uh, God's will in our lives. 
faithful giving. Now, the Bible says, now this I say in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God lives, God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians. So we mentioned earlier, everything we have is a gift from God. It's all heads. We're just doers. So the concept of, of giving is just returning what's already, what already belongs to him. Now, if we claim it all as mine or ours, then the giving part becomes more difficult. If we think it's mine or ours and not his, then our little mental faculties think, well, you know, the Bible says I have to give, but it's mine. I'm just going to give what I want. You know, is that what God desires? Because in reality, it's not mine. Giving back to the churches in the Philippians, they did this as an action of love. Love for the brethren and love for Christ. God remains generous. It's interesting to me that he remains generous, even though we lost, in, when, when Adam did what he did, we lost all that stuff the way we had it. God still remains generous to us. He still gives us gifts. He gave us his son as the ultimate gift. How much more generous can you be? I dare say that God does not care about what we accumulate anyway. He doesn't care about our things. He's much more concerned with his people than he is the things of his people. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very, very grace. So we're to use God's gifts that he has given us, those including, including the monetary gifts he's bestowed, we're to use as good stewards. And faithful giving in our lives begin, begins by purposing in our hearts to give and then following through with whatever our heart has purposed to give. And this can be a set amount each week. You know, it could be a percentage um, of your income each week. Um, that's something that, that God's going to have to work on your heart with. But it doesn't have to be the same percentage as everybody else. It could be more or less. And obviously that's, that's determined by where God's put us in our lives. Now, if you're like in the, in the donut days, you might only be, get, be able to give $5 because that's all, that's all God's given you. Uh, it may be that God's provided generously to you and we need to look at giving generously back to God for what he's provided for us. And to do that faithfully, it's the purpose in our hearts, what to give, and then to do it. it but it should be sacrificial. Having said that, it should also be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. If we're unable to give anything cheerfully, then, then we need to look back and repent. If our giving is taking 
If I look at the checkbook and I say, I'm only going to give this much this week. Mm. Then is that a cheerful giver? Or do I look at the checkbook and say, Lord, by your grace and mercy, Lord, we need to give this much this week or this month, this percentage today, tomorrow, whatever. And, and yes, the church is, is by far where we should be allotting most of those funds as we reach out to the world and, and try to reach as much of the world as, as possible. But once you get to a certain point, if God brings us to a certain point in our lives when we, when we have extra funds, don't be afraid to use those extra funds for other people outside the church because that's how we get to show other people outside the church what it's like in the church. Uh, I know some people set up, and I always thought, I've never been able to do this, but I'd love to. I keep thinking, by the time I get it done, I'll be 90. But I love this idea of setting apart a small amount, be it $5 a week, $10 a week, $20 a week, a month or whatever, for miscellaneous giving. And that could be for giving to um, someone in need. Maybe to buy groceries for somebody. But it's there. You may not use it every month. Maybe build up for two months. And there may be a need seen somewhere. somewhere. Someone within the body needs something. And by God's grace, he's provided for us. We take that little bit of means that we have and we say, here. And we do that cheerfully and out of our heart. So, sensible lifestyle. Yes, the American dream. It used to be a house, a car, two kids, or 2.5, depending who you are, a washer and a dryer. That was the American dream. Today it's a four bedroom home, three bath, maybe kids, maybe not, a new, well, at least one new car, probably two in the drive. That's the American dream nowadays. A sensible lifestyle means, though, living within our means. That means living within what God has given us through, through the hard work that we talked about earlier. And being good, stu good stewards by spending wisely and living within our means, that's another way of being good stewards for God's kingdom. It also, as we said earlier, it demonstrates God's kingdom to those around us when we're good stewards. We live a sensible lifestyle But what we find is we want what we want. Our kids kind of learn that earlier, early in life, if your kids were anything like, and I know you young people, you haven't had kids, a lot of you haven't had kids yet, some of you aren't married, whatever, but here's something to look forward to. I want, I want, I want. You know, it's, it's you know, and usually what happens if they give you a tantrum or something, they, you know, they're playing themselves on the floor. They usually sometimes, well, most generally, they're going to get what they want. Hopefully, we're as wise parents, knows this isn't good for them, but, but uh, sometimes we're kind of that way ourselves. We want what we want. Um, so being wise with money and material things, I said, it, it, it's not very complicated, but it can be hard. It requires commitment to that one simple guideline. We live within our means. We live within, in other words, what we possess is what we live within. What we make is what we live within. It's kind of, like, it's kind of a, it's a very simple concept, and it's pretty much a worldwide concept. You know, it doesn't matter where you live, pretty much need to be living within your means. Things start to get dicey uh, when we spend more than what we're 
than we have or what we make. Now, I've been unemployed at least three times in my life. And unfortunately, it never was a good time. If there is, ever is a good time to be unemployed, usually during a downturn in the economy. Each time the savings were depleted, the credit card debt went up, and when I found a job, it took uh, usually two or three years to just get back to a, a level keen where we could save again. And I found that credit cards, they can be good, they can be evil. <laughs> you know, a person really needs to be careful when you have a credit card about how we spend our money using them because sometimes we think, uh, I'm not gonna put someone on the spot, but when we were, they were first married, someone thought that a checkbook, if it had checks in it, meant that there was money in the account. Therefore, we could write as many checks as long as we had checks. No, okay. So some of y'all don't remember checkbooks, but <laughs> anyway, that's not the case. You know, we have to live within our means. So, but there are, there are times when using a credit card or even debt, uh, there are seasons in life where bank loans and lines of credit can be helpful and wise. You know, they're rare, but like buying a house or uh, uh, taking out a bank loan and, you know, just need to be wise in how we do that, making sure we, we can afford the down payment and the ability to pay the note. Um, maybe we're using a line of credit to expand a business. That might be a wise investment you know, provided the marketplace supports that decision. And uh, as we get older, life and death, well, even, even in midlife, uh, uh, medical treatments, they might require money we don't possess at the time. You know, and those are things we have to consider case by case. Again, these are situations most people don't face every day. But in everything, the, the primary thing is here, and, and I know we haven't hit upon that much, really haven't hit it at all here, is prayer. And prayer is a couple. Praying, praying together about our financial situation and about the things that we desire and how to spend our money wisely. We need to go to the Lord for that. We need to talk together as a couple, you know, we, um, and, and, and avoid that conflict. We need to seek the wisdom of older men and women who have struggled well. The real wisdom is of being a good, stu of being a good steward involves how we approach material things day to day also. And hour to hour, you know, a lot of our financial mistakes we make little by little, little step at a time. Uh, Maybe the clothes, the clothing we purchase, the kind of restaurant we're eating at, the types of cars we drive, the monthly cost of homes we purchase, the sports our children play, the cost of our vacations, entertainment, electronics, other gadgets. You know, we can build up a lot of debt in those things. And, and, and not be, by not being careful about how we spend our money on the little things and what we consume, like uh, sodas, coffee, cigarettes. You know, they, they represent areas where living sensibly under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's important. A prayerful life, each day, each morning, starting out that way. In Thessalonians 4.10, it says, But we urge you, brethren, to ex excel still more and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in need to any. Gets back to that idea of, of oneness being represented of our, our relationship with Christ and the church being represented to those outside the body of Christ. So in this passage, Paul encourages us to lead a simple, sensible life. He's told us not to aim for an extravagant lifestyle, but something more reasonable 
perhaps more basic. He wants us to lead a quiet life. He means for us to be a level-headed in how we work and also how we play. We need to mind our own daily business, you know, kind of plod along in our duties and our life and, and pay your bills. And he said, and this is what I see he argued here. He's, he's offering a good example of godly wisdom to the world. So making the choice to live a sensible life can prove to be difficult. Again, I said credit cards, they make it easy. But our sinful nature, again, it's back to our sinful nature that craves the things that make us feel good. Again, it wants what it wants. It refuses to be content. You know, it, uh, uh, it refuses to be content. It wants more, which means it won't stop wanting to add stuff and more financial burdens to our life. This, the sinful nature it fled, of the flesh it covets, it craves. That sinful nature it won't care about financial wisdom. It's not going to care about budgets. It's not going to care about being responsible. After all, it's a whole lot easier to attain stuff, to get stuff in, this, in our society than it is to pay for it. It's easy to go out and, and use a credit card or whatever and get stuff and, and then worry about paying for it later. So if we desire to give the glory to Christ and his kingdom, we have to learn to say no to the desires of the flesh. We have to learn to drive the cars, to drive cars, eat food, and wear clothing that fits our income. Then we need to be wise about our preparation for the future. The last thing we need to talk about, stewarding well for the future. How do we honor Christ as good stewards as we prepare for the future? We honor him by preparing wisely. Preparing for the future needs to be in accordance with biblical principles. We save for the future, not out of the fear of the future, or to live in Costa Rica, or to have nicer, step, nicer stuff. If we look at Luke, Luke 12 and 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Men, who may be judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against covetousness. For one life, one's life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? You've made ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's wisdom in setting aside money for retirement, where we may serve the Lord without the burden of work. Our physical bodies, they, they kind of wear out. Now, these verses speak to greed and covetous, covetousness, not necessarily retirement. They do give us, however, a look at the motive for preparing for the future. My dad worked for American Airlines for 37 years before he retired. He retired to take care of my mom in his late 50s. Um, she had uh, uh, early onset Alzheimer's. And uh, he was allowed to retire at 57 because American Airlines bought out his, uh, paid him a, a severance package. It was a great deal of money. So that allowed him to retire early. Well, he, uh, he got wrapped up in making money for his kids. Nothing wrong with wanting to leave something for your kids. But my dad got wrapped up in it. 
And in 2001, when the uh, market crashed, he lost everything he had, pretty much everything he had. He lost in 2001, which was a huge, uh, huge crash to him, it shattered him. But he, the vehicle he used for that was the stock market. And you have to be careful. It's, it's just like gambling. <laughs> it can be, and to him it was. To, he, but his desire, his desire wasn't so bad, but the covetousness was there. He saw the money he was making. His desire to provide for his children was fine. But the covetousness, the, the motive was, even as gracious as it might have been towards us, the motive was still wrong. The motive was still wrong. So we need to be vigilant. We need to, to, uh, to watch those resources as we gather them over time. So resources you're given in this life, they're intended for loving God and loving others. They do not deserve our trust and hope. In Proverbs 11.20, it says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. God alone deserves our hope and trust. So instead of trusting, trust, trusting riches, my mouth's getting dry. I'm encouraging you to prayerfully understand the needs of your financial situation and prepare to, to care for those needs with biblical wisdom. Saving for the birth of a child or a vehicle or the down payment on a home, they're proper and right. Saving for retirement. Philippians 24, 27 instructs us, prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. We're to work diligently, live sensibly, and prepare for the future. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you. Gracious Father, most holy above all, Father, we pray that our hearts be willing to hear your word this morning and this morning's message, Lord. That, Lord, you open your word up. That Brother, Brother Brad, Lord, that he preaches your word with uh, truth and with vigor. Father, we thank you for, for his presence, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory that is only in Jesus Christ and the love that we might have him. As we go forward today, Lord, may each and every one of us keep in mind Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.